Amen. You may be seated. On a Sunday, 2,000 years ago, an empty tomb was discovered. But something happened on that day that we don't often talk about. And that there was two disciples, dejected, despondent, disappointed, deeply depressed, who took a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. We will call them today the two disciples from Emmaus. Those two disciples, all hope had lost. The story of their Messiah had not ended the way they thought or the way they planned. And they are walking on the, back, on the way back to Emmaus, to their village where they lived. Their back was to, their, to Jerusalem. Their hope was to their back. They had turned their back on their dreams. They had turned their back on what they believed would happen. They had turned their back on, on the thing they had put their confidence in and they had believed in and they had pinned their hopes on. They turned their back to that and they were going back to Emmaus. We've all done that in our life, haven't we? We've all had to turn our back on what we thought was going to make us happy and what we thought was going to solve our problems and what we thought was going to be the answer what we thought was going to fulfill all our hopes and all our dreams. And they turned their back and they were walking back home, never thinking their life would be the same again. And they're joined by a stranger. And he begins to share with them and talk to them about the word of God and the scripture and what had just happened. He just happened to be going the same direction they were going. He just happened to be going to their house. And the Bible says in Luke 24, verse 30, and it came to pass as he said it, meet with them, and he took bread and he blessed it and break and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened up the scriptures to us? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now verse 33 of Luke 24 says, And they rose up. That's significant. They rose up. That is significant. They returned to Jerusalem. That's beyond significant. That's heavy. They were going back to their hopes and dreams. They were going back to the kingdom that they thought was gone. See, we must not lightly consider they rose up and returned to Jerusalem as casually as we might point out that George or Bill and Sue got up and went to Dunkin' Donuts. Would you like anything? What was going on at Rome was a display of force via the crucifixion. See, it was Jesus who took what had been a symbol of Roman violence and strength and dominance and turned it into a lovely piece of jewelry. It was Jesus that took what was a symbol of, of, of an oppressive regime that had dominated the world and turned it into something that we put on top of buildings and we put on the wall and we consider it now a domesticated image. This wasn't just a, you know, a rising up their, their bodies. It was way more than that. To give you an idea of the fearsomeness and gruesomeness of the cross and how the Romans used it to, to intimidate the culture into bowing to them. You might want to go back in your memory or, or in what you've read in history of, 
of a, a guy named Spartacus. Spartacus led a slave rebellion in 73 BC. And in 71 BC, Rome put down that rebellion and they crucified 6,000 slaves. 6,000 slaves on the, what is known as the Appian Way, 120 miles out of Rome to uh, Capua. And on the road to Capua is, is, is a winding road and there was a cross every 40 feet was a man on a cross being picked at by the birds of the air and the carry-on and the buzzards and everything else and, and, and many of them half dead and not completely dead and crying out in agony because the cross, the death on the cross, the reason they love to use it is because sometimes it would take four or five days for a man to die. We cannot even imagine the horror, the gruesomeness. It would, it would, it would sicken us. We've turned the cross into something beautiful, but the cross was not something beautiful. It was an instrument of terror. It was an instrument of oppression. This is what Jerusalem was. This is what they were looking at in Jerusalem. If they crucified the leader, they didn't mind making a point of crucifying all of his followers. They had a huge capacity for violence. So this wasn't just a rising up of their bodies. This was a rising up of their psyches, their spirits, their hearts. This was a rising up of their lives. These were men for whom the revelation that he has risen indeed had taken their fear of Rome away. It had removed their fear of human and demonic power. These were men for whom the revelation he has risen indeed removed their fear of death. These were men for whom the revelation he has risen in deeds had put their, put their minds back to their mission that they had to go back and rise up to fulfill. Don't lose that point today. These were men for whom the revelation he has risen indeed made proclamation of the, of the good news the only reasonable choice. This resurrection revelation caused them to discover their kingdom of God vocation again. The scripture says, faith without works is dead. That means that in Jesus, we find our employment. We don't work for our salvation, but we sure do work from it. Amen? Have you had your rise up and go to Jerusalem moment? That's what this day is all about at Bethany Community Church. To ask you the question, have you had your rise up and go to Jerusalem moment? Or are you still sleepwalking through life? I want you to note something. They didn't rise up out of guilt. They didn't rise up out of pity for their poor suffering Savior. Jesus did not say to them, men, I've suffered so much for you. The least you can do is suffer for me. Jesus did not put them on a guilt trip. Jesus did not say, do you see all I've done for you? Don't you think you can do a little bit for me for the rest of your life? Jesus did not even direct them. Jesus did not direct them. Jesus did not guide them. Jesus did not direct them. He inspired them. There's a whole difference, right? That deserved more than a golf clap. <laughs> Jesus didn't just direct them. He inspired them. He didn't tell them what to do. You know you're on fire when, when the boss doesn't have to give you directions. You, you know you've got people that have passion and motivation when you don't have to give them detailed instruction. They saw the risen Lord 
they had no choice but to go back to work. They had no choice to get back on mission. They See, we don't rise up out of, out of guilt. It's not possible. I, I'm glad that we've moved beyond shaming people into doing right. That was an instrument that the church used for many, many years. But that's when the society was neurotic. Now society is so psychotic, you can't make them feel guilty. <laughs> I mean, try that, on, try that on your loved ones to make them feel guilty for their sin. That's why when you say, well, don't you want Jesus to forgive them, give you your sin? They go, what sin? Well, good news is Jesus didn't use that approach. He didn't use that approach to say, you're so bad and I'm so good. You ought to do something for me. No, that's not what, how it works. We don't rise up out of guilt, but we rise up to worship and be taken in by the majesty of Jesus. I said, we rise up to worship and be taken in by the majesty of Jesus. Before the seven-mile sprint, and it was a sprint back to Jerusalem. They didn't sprint away, but they sprinted back. I believe they were like Stevie G in the marathon. That's great. I'm so glad you're doing that, Steve. It's going to be awesome. Before the seven-mile sprint back to Jerusalem, there was a heart-to-heart communication with the disappointed disciples and the triumphant Son of Man with the nail-scarred hands. And that conversation changed everything. The worship response, see, happens, uh, and this is so interesting, throughout the Gospels. As much as we believe, as much as we believe that, that the intellect has to be involved, and the intellect was involved here as well because they explained the scriptures to them. So the intellect was involved. The brain was engaged, absolutely. But more than the brain, the heart was engaged. The worship response happens when we have a heart-first experience with the risen Lord. Don't negate, don't minimize the power of your heart. Don't minimize the power of your emotions and the power of your feelings and the ability for God to reveal himself to your heart. Don't minimize that. Don't minimize that out of fear that you won't be as, appear as brilliant as someone else. People who don't rely on their emotions don't, do, not rise, do not arrive at the right conclusions in life. They just happen to be in the same space as Jesus, right? I put just happen in quotes. Nothing just happens. I said nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. That's the way we all became worshipers, you know? We didn't plan on it. Even when you came to this church, you didn't plan on becoming a Christian. You heard what an awesome inspirational talks I give every week. <laughs> right? You wanted to hear some good music and not have to pay a cover charge. You heard, you, you, you were lonely and you wanted friends. And you just kind of got sick and tired of the friends in those other establishments. That wasn't working out. So you came here looking for some friends. You had no idea that Jesus was walking on the road with you. You had no idea. You had no idea that you were fellow, hanging out with the risen Lord. 
You had no idea that you were hanging out with the one who had walked into hell and taken away from the devil the keys of death, hell, and the grave. You had no idea who the one who had broken out of the tomb and risen to the Father and offered himself as a sacrifice in his own blood for all the sins of humanity. You had no idea that you were walking and talking with the king of the world. No idea. Worship is not just something that you happen to do. It's something that happens to you. Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened the scriptures? What happened to Josh McDowell when he went to college and began to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And he wrote two great big fat volumes called Evidence that Demands a Verdict, defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what happened to Frank Morrison uh, 50, 60 years ago when Frank Morrison sat down to, to refute the deity of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he ended up becoming a Christian and he wrote, the title of his book was Who Moved the Stone? Amen? Most of us didn't come to church looking for a personal relationship with Jesus, but Jesus won us over. <laughs> Christ wooed us to himself and he, he, he joins us, we don't join him. He joins us, we don't join him. He accepts us before we accept him. I said, he accepts us before we accept him. He comes into our life before we, give our, before we go into his life. The worship response is when we allow the risen Savior to woo us away from false hopes and false gods. False hope is the calling card of false gods. Now, these two fine gentlemen were not idolaters in the grotesque ways that we normally associate with paganism. They, had, they weren't offering their firstborn sacrifices. They weren't bowing to pagan deities in, in the formal sense. But they had bowed to the idea of Jesus simply. Now, this is, listen to me. Hear this. They had bowed to the idea of Jesus simply being a better version of Caesar and the kingdom a better version of Rome. But regime change wasn't what Jesus was trying to do. Regime, regime change wasn't what he was about. Regime change that didn't deal with the dark non-human forces behind the dark human forces wasn't going to change the world. Jesus was going to live 70, 80 years. He was going to die and someone of lesser quality was going to become the next ruler. It wasn't going to last. The real problem of humanity wasn't going to be dealt with. I know that demons and devils and all of that doesn't fit with sophisticated Western thought. But you cannot explain. You cannot explain the evil of this world and our inability to resolve it. You cannot explain it without believing in dark non-human forces that move people to do the unthinkable. You cannot deal with it. You cannot explain it to yourself unless you believe there are forces of evil that uh, the mother of all bombs or missiles fired into Syria are not 
going to conquer that force. We got rid, you know, wouldn't we like to have Al-Qaeda back? <laughs> Boy, I'd like to have, what's his name there? What? No, no. Osama bin Laden, you know, he seems like a, he seems like Mr. Rogers compared to what's going on now. And I'm not, I'm not belittling. I'm not, I'm not making a joke of it. Because it wasn't Al-Qaeda and it's not ISIS. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There's a dark non-human force. And if we had a time, I would develop that thought. And I think I could make a good case we cannot explain the merry-go-round, the, the carousel of no progress over the problems of the world, the hunger, the abuse, the abuse of power. We cannot explain it without believing there's a dark force. So what good would it have done for Jesus to march on Rome? Jesus didn't bother with Rome. Rome wasn't the problem. Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, marched on hell. Amen? He marched on the forces of darkness. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. And he took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hallelujah. Jesus announced his kingdom and his death at the same time. You ever notice that? But we go, in our human way of looking at things, what a pity. He died so young. N.T. <laughs> Wright says, when we are faced with the horrors of the last hundred years, it becomes increasingly difficult to say, as the Enlightenment wanted to say, the French Enlightenment he's talking about, that extended to America and still extends today. The Enlightenment wanted to say humankind has come of age and basically nothing's wrong that couldn't be cured by more voting, more education, and more medicine. I like Luke 24, 25, because it extinguishes the myth that Jesus always speaks with timidity and in reverent tones, that he was never aggressive in his communication. Listen to how he speaks to the two disciples from Emmaus when they, when they were depressed. Now, you, you might not want to go to Jesus for counseling if you're in depression. You might think, if I could just have Jesus as a counselor, then he would speak gentle and kind words to me, and he would just be so soothing. But listen to what he said. He said to them, and in a second, I want to put this in our vernacular. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. Now, he's telling this to guys who are in deep depression. and They're just, they're just like a suicidal level of depression here. And he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter to glory? And so in our vernacular, he's saying, are you guys crazy? You were really going to put your trust in a guy who didn't suffer and die and rise again? You were going to do that again? You were going to believe in another Caesar? You guys weren't thinking. You guys deserve a savior that in the words of the song, conquered death by death. Don't you get it? His death 
caused a Roman general to say, truly this was the Son of God. His death caused the mob that earlier had been screaming, crucify him, to walk away beating their breast. Not his life, but his death. There was a sense of the cross that he had won. Isn't that weird? There was a sense of the people around the cross that we didn't win. That's why we're called to live the crucified life. Because it's the winning way. So I say it again. Don't underestimate your emotional intelligence. Don't underestimate what you're feeling in this service. Don't underestimate what you're, you're feeling in the songs and in the sermon and in the, in the feeling of this place. Don't underestimate that. Don't minimize the accuracy of your burning heart for it's the passion that brings the next response. We will rise up to do the work of Jesus in the world. The transformation of the, the Maus disciples, I just want to give this to you straight out, was evidenced when three things happened. Their disposition changed. They got really happy. Their direction changed. They quit turning their back to Jeruz on Jerusalem. And, and that's very symbolic. And that's a powerful symbolism right there. That, that they quit turning their back on. They turned their face back toward their Jerusalem. And their vocation changed. I don't know what they were thinking about doing with the rest of them. They probably hadn't got to that. They probably hadn't gone through grief counseling and uh, 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 employment, career retraining, uh, because they had previously planned on serving in Christ's cabinet. Previously, uh, they were going to be somewhere near his right hand and his left hand. Previously, they were going to be head of something in the new kingdom. So I'm sure there was a need for career retraining. Their vocation changed. Let's look at it. I mean, retouch those three thoughts. Disposition, and their eyes were open, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. Their direction, and they rose up that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together there, and, and them that were with him. Their vocation, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way. It was now their job. It was now their job to be informers of hope. It was now their job to be elevators. I said it was now their vocation to elevate people, to raise people up, to make things better. That's the message of the resurrection for the church. Boniface Mwangi said, recent TED talk, these are the most two power, there are two most powerful days in your life. The day you were born and the day you discover wine. I love that. Unlike most evangelical Christians in the Western world, see, here's something we need to understand about the two disciples. Unlike most evangelicals in the Christian in the Western world, the Maus disciples understood before, before Jesus died, they understood this. That as Jews, they were to be the image-bearing representatives of God in the world. See, Western people, we don't have that understanding. 
we don't have that understanding that we are to be the image bearers of God in the world. But Jews had that understanding. But the crucifixion of the Messiah threw them off because suffering didn't yet make sense to them. But when it did make sense to them, when they saw the risen Lord, they were back on track. That's why they were able to do such a, a 180. Because they already had the mental construct for what they were on earth for. And Jesus' death threw them off a little bit. And that's why they were so confused. But the minute they met him in their eyes, they, they got it. Oh, oh, man, I get it. I get it. We, we don't have to do career retraining. We can go back to our jobs. The plant's opening again. God didn't, see, God didn't launch a military offensive, but he actualized the Sermon on the Mount, which says, blessed are the peacemakers, the poor in spirit, and the meek shall inherit the earth. They now understood how their vocation of being God's image bearers worked, and that was to be sharing hope instead of rulers with palaces executing military conquest. Again, let me quote N.T. Wright. He says, by the time the bullies and the power brokers of the world have woken up and realized what's happening, the poor in spirit, the meek and the peacemakers have built hospitals, schools, and are looking after the poor, are resolving conflict, and are transforming the world with love and hope. That's how Christianity is spread from start to finish, and that's how it works to this day. God's kingdom, that's how it works. God's kingdom, according to this different kind of power, this different kind of power. Oh, do you hear me today? God has given us a different kind of power. God has given us a different kind of power. It's the power of love. It's the power of hope. It's the power of making things better. Amen. That's how Christianity is spread. God's kingdom works according to this different kind of power. James and John wanted to call down fire, remember? Remember that? Some of you are Bible readers. They wanted to call down fire, but Jesus said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. You don't know. When they wanted to have a power struggle, he said, oh, the last will be the greatest. It's a different kind of power. Let me quote N.T. Wright one more time. He's usurped uh, uh, Tim Keller. <laughs> most churches, listen to this. Most churches are offering people a private spirituality and a distant heaven. We've made the cross simply the place where our moral failings are dealt with so we can go to heaven when we die. That happens all right, but the resurrection isn't primarily about going to heaven. It's about the launch of God's new creation under the rule of the new humans. Rise up. Rise up. It's not rise up someday in the sweet by and by. It's rise up now because Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. He goes on to say, we've domesticated the cross as much in our preaching as we have our jewelry. I say, and this is my words, I say we're called to proclamation and service to the world, not weekend service tune-ups. 
that result in you being broken down again by Wednesday and you have to call AAA to tow you back to the house of God. So Pastor Phil, who's supposedly been in the presence of God all week, will have another word for you to get you going again. That's why we're often so lame and untransformed because the church is supposed to be better on Monday than it is on Sunday. Hallelujah. You know, the, the modern church has criticized the traditional church for being too focused on going away to heaven in the sweet by and by, and that is a fair criticism. But the modern megachurch movement has not improved things one bit because the modern megachurch says it's all about the weekend, which translated means a weekly dose of good sanitized Christian entertainment fulfills the purpose of God for our lives. Christians transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ will rise up and go to Jerusalem embracing the holy work of resurrecting their community and their workplace. A Christ follower who embraces their resurrection vocation knows their assignment is to elevate everything they touch, including buildings, people, public discourse, civility, and relationships. Can I have a little more time this morning? Can you give me a couple more minutes? Some of you know the, the last couple of weeks and what they've been like for us. We've mourned a death in our congregation. And I read this quote, even though he was willing to be quoted by the paper, I'll leave his name and position in the town out for whatever reason and just read to you what someone from the town of Minden said. And it just touched my heart so much. Because that's been my, it's really been my passion for 29 years is I wanted to have a seat at the table in the community. And it was never all about the weekend to me. I love the weekend and I love meeting Jesus on the weekend. But that was never the main thing to me. I never felt that was the, where, where God put the stethoscope on the church for how healthy it was but just how big the weekend was and how fantastic the weekend was. Here's what someone said, who's probably, I don't think they've ever been to this church, someone who lives in Mended. The church is a great establishment, a great part of our community, and I'm sure this is impacting them tremendously. I know Mended is a very tight community. We will certainly rally around any family that is going through a tough situation or is in need. I, I emailed this gentleman and said, I read your statement in the Boston Herald this morning. You probably have no idea how encouraging that was to me. At the very deepest level of my heart, I've wanted BCC to be perceived as partners in building a better Menden and demonstrators of compassion to the greater Milford area. The fact that you communicated publicly a positive perception of us is one of the most inspiring moments to come out of this tragic event. As you can imagine, it's been challenging to keep our focus on comforting a grieving family and a grieving church while fending off implications that we are running an illegal childcare program. However, by the grace of God and the support of our community, we will strive to keep making the main thing the main thing. And then I, I offer to sit down with him and answer any questions he has about what has transpired. He emailed me back. I can only imagine the pain and grief that you, Sherry, the family, the baby, and the entire BCC family are experiencing. Please accept my sincere condolences. I'm not sure if you're in contact with the family at this point, but if so, please express my and my wife, calls her name, deepest sympathies, and let them know that not only do they have a church community behind them, but they also have the entire Minden community thinking and praying for them. 
I hope you are doing okay with all the negative attacks and, all the, and things are settling down. I pray that you do not listen to this sentence because it goes with what I'm preaching. I pray that you do not derail your community efforts. You and the entire BCC family are a vital part of a thriving community. I believe that BCC will always be perceived as a partner of our community. I would love to meet you just to be able to introduce myself. Would, be willing, would you be willing to meet me for an evening for a cup of coffee and nice conversation? We will work till Jesus comes, not till the job is finished. But where do we get our strength and find sustaining grace? Where do we get it? Just by working hard? No. You get depleted by working hard. You will. Just, just to give you a little insight, a little genius of mine, if you work, you will get tired. You will get tired. If you give away your money, you'll have less. It's just, I, I, people come from far and wide to hear the, these profound sayings. Here, here, here's, here's the key. We will rise up to know Jesus in the breaking of bread. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. The pattern of using a meal to reveal is a pattern in the life of Jesus. He ate with sinners. He transformed a hated tax collector named Zacchaeus by having dinner with him, not inviting him to church, but having dinner with him. He made his final meeting with the twelve the last supper, not the last sermon. Christ's third appearance to his disciples was over breakfast, where he personally cooked for them. When the apostle Paul wanted to put the stethoscope on the heart of the Corinthian church's health issues, he examined how welcoming and unselfish they were at their potluck dinners. The breaking of the bread, let me say this, did not occur in a special place. I know we do communion here. We got, we're going to have communion in a moment. It, it did not occur in a special place with special dishes, but in the course of an ordinary meal in someone's home. In the midst of a half-eaten supper, that's where the bread was broken, and Jesus came alive to them. See, God doesn't live, I, I, this disappointment to some of you, God doesn't live in the church. So what does it mean to know Jesus in the breaking of bread? It means this, that Jesus comes alive in the sharing of love and hospitality in our ordinary, everyday lives. It means that those who don't rise up and share their spaces, their homes, and their food with others will never have Jesus come alive in their lives. For many people, donating taxpayers' money has replaced the magic of being personally hospitable to the strangers in our midst. Think of the profundity of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, in light of what I just said. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some have done this without, but some have done this, have who have done this, have entertained angels without realizing it. He's saying that your best chance of a supernatural encounter is not going to a revival, but to entertain and show 
hospitality and love and part of yourself and your life, share pieces of your life with people that you barely know. That's how the church knows Jesus. That's how the church meets Jesus. Of course we find Jesus here on Sunday, but we must stop missing the extraordinary in the ordinary course of our lives. I'm hoping that one of my guests at dinner at lunch today turns out to be an angel from heaven. I'm hoping. Listen to this. Listen to what I don't. This is not going to go on the wall for you, but this is a. I love this statement by Ann Williams. She said, "Some worry that we don't take the sacraments seriously enough. Sacraments. That's what we see here. That's what we're going to partake of in a moment. I worry that we don't take everyday life." sacramentally enough. I've, I've, already, I've always been chilled by that song. Let it, we don't sing it anymore, but we sang it when I was a kid. Let us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together on our knees. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. Let us break bread together on our knees. Maybe we can sing that. Let us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together on our knees. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Let us break bread together Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can you feel his presence in this place? Can you feel his presence right now? Hallelujah. I'm going to, today we're going to, see, we're going to do the symbol today of what we want you to do in your ordinary everyday lives. I want to send you from this place to rise up, to begin to live a sacramental life and begin. It doesn't have to be like this. It can be Dunkin' Donuts. It can be a, a, a pot of coffee that you put on that you invite a lonely person to sit at your table and you have coffee with them. It can be that. But it cannot be. We cannot live separated lives and know Jesus. We cannot live alone and know Jesus. We are. Say it. We are what? The body of Christ. We are the risen body of Christ. If that sinks in, you're going to freak out. So I'm going to invite the prayer partners to come. I'm going to serve them communion. Then they're going to come down. And we're going to invite you to participate today in prayer.
We ask you to follow our example, and we're going to invite all of you to receive communion. Before we do that, we're going to pray for people with needs. We're going to pray for people who may have decided to accept Jesus and to receive Him today. We're going to pray for those who are broken and disappointed by life, and you've turned your back on Jerusalem. We're going to pray that God will turn you around today. I bless this in the name of Jesus. Let's receive together. Hallelujah. At this time, I ask our prayer partners to go take their places. Now, for those of you that have come to here regularly, you know this is response time at Bethany. This is time we have people that are prepared, people who love Jesus, to pray a prayer for you. So I want you to come forward and be prayed for if you've decided to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to come forward and be prayed for if you sense God is talking to you about your kingdom vocation and God is talking to you about calling you from this kind of life to this kind of life. I want you to come forward if you need the healing of Jesus for disappointments depression, pain, sadness, difficulties. Oh, it's not about Jesus going to the cross, but some other hope and dream you had died. We're going to pray for you today. And just hold on. I'm going to give time for those who come forward and be, begin to be prayed for, and then I'm going to come back and invite the rest of you to receive communion. Come now if you want to be prayed for. Quickly move, please. Let's all stand, and that might make it easier for some to slip out and come and be prayed for. Don't miss this opportunity for the prayer partners to minister to you today. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you, and God bless.